have you go ahead and turn to John 19. So we've made our way through John over these many months. We'll come to the death of Jesus, John 19. We'll be looking at verse 31 to 42, but I'm going to start reading in verse 30 just to give us the context from last week. Now, Father, would You open our eyes, open our ears, increase our attention spans if need to be. Don't let us be distracted and wander around mentally. Take hold of our hearts. Grip us with Your truth. Speak, Lord, and let us listen with profit. Let us gain what You would have for us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that is the prisoners, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look upon Him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths uh, with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's Word. So Jesus was dead. A lifeless corpse hanging on a cross for all to see. His life was gone. He was dead. Now that fact must not be overlooked or nothing that follows will make sense nor will His resurrection be seen as glorious. For Jesus, the the Lord and life giver, the one who gives all life, was dead. As dead as any person who has ever existed. And so to understand the power of the resurrection which we will celebrate in two weeks, we must begin with this fact Jesus was truly dead. You notice that John is at pains to make that simple fact very clear to us. 
He says, being the day of preparation or Friday, so the bodies wouldn't hang there until the Sabbath, which the Jews would find offensive. They asked for the legs of these men to be broken. The soldiers came, broke the legs of the one and the other, but when they came to Jesus, He was dead. And so it's Friday. The day before the Sabbath, and Jews had to prepare everything in order to get through the Sabbath. And not just any Sabbath this time. This, we're told, was a high Sabbath because it's part of the Passover week celebrations. Normally, the practice of the Romans was, when they crucified somebody like this, is they would just leave the body on the cross, sometimes for days. It was a warning. Don't let this be you. But it was also a form of degradation. This person is worthless trash, they were saying. Let the vultures eat the body and throw whatever happens to remain into the town garbage heap. But for the Jews, that would be sacrilege. Uh, Even the bodies of bad men were made by God and made in His image and therefore had value. You didn't treat them like trash. You buried them. Nor could they be left hanging on a cross overnight. The law was clear. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 said, If a man was condemned, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, and for them a cross would count as a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You shall not. The law commands. That command was important on any day to the Jews, but it would have been especially important on a high day like this during Passover. And so they go to Pilate and demand that he break the legs of these crucified men and take them away. Now, why break the legs? Remember, for a crucified man to breathe, uh, he had to hoist himself up on the cross, pulling with his arms, pushing with his legs to get his body in a position where he could actually take a breath. You take away his legs, he'll suffocate in minutes. And that was a thing the Romans actually did sometimes, if necessary. They even had a name for it that I won't try to pronounce. I don't do Latin very well. But they would take this heavy iron mallet and they would shatter the leg at the shin just below the knee And death would come pretty quickly. So Pilate, rather than risk a riot, because believe me, there would have been a riot had he not done this, Pilate gave permission. The soldiers came. They break the legs of the first man and then of the other. By the way, how horrible to be that second man. Right? To see what just happened and know that it's coming for you. But when they came to Jesus, they're surprised to see that He is in fact already dead. Um, He had dismissed his spirit. Do you remember in verse 30? We just read that. As soon as he declared, it is finished, he bowed his head, he dismissed his spirit, he rested his soul in the waiting arms of his father. But he was dead. They didn't expect that. And it was their job as professional executioners to make sure that in fact he was dead. One of them grabs a spear sitting nearby, thrusts it through the side of Jesus, and instantly blood and water flow. A clear confirmation that he was indeed dead. 
Modern physicians can't really resist looking back at this and trying to diagnose what it may have been specifically that Jesus died from. The Journal of American Medical Association article I mentioned a couple of weeks ago um, speculates that it may have been heart failure so that as the spear enters in, it pierces the pericardial sac, uh, which was full of fluid by then, and the heart itself. And so you get this flood, this flow of both blood and water. Uh, Others have suggested that the trauma from the beatings that Jesus endured has filled the abdomen with blood and fluid and that this is what we see. Someone actually even did a test with a cadaver and said, yeah, that's what happens. But whatever it was, the point remains, Jesus is assuredly dead. Jesus is confirmed as dead. He, He didn't just faint. He didn't pass out to later be revived. He was dead. A stone-cold corpse. And it was the job of these soldiers to make sure of that. And that's exactly what they do. Now, before we move on, let me just say a word about this flow of blood and water from Jesus' side. Um, The early church fathers made a big deal about that. Uh, Men like Augustine and others saw that and said that was surely a symbol of the Lord's Supper and baptism. I think probably that's going a little too far. The church fathers sometimes like to read things in. But it is clear John is calling our attention to this flow of blood and water, that he wants us to see it, that that there's some significance that he wants. uh, Beyond the fact that it confirms Jesus' death, John says, look at this. And most commentaries would agree then that what we're supposed to see here is a visible reminder that this is our redemption. Uh, The blood reminds us that Jesus indeed gave His life as the sacrifice for our sins, a propitiation in His blood to carry away the wrath of God. 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And the water pictures that cleansing and perhaps even picturing the Holy Spirit whom Jesus earlier in John said would flow out of renewed hearts like rivers of living water. And so here in image form is the fact that this life-giving flow released from Jesus' pierced side represents our redemption. In fact, think of all the songs we sing that, that pick up on that theme. Uh, Fanny Crosby's great hymn says, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Or Augustus Toplady wrote, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. John wants us to see that flow. He wants us to see that it is real, to understand that herein lies the power of God for our salvation. But notice second, that Jesus' death was witnessed. It was verified by eyewitnesses and confirmed by Scripture. 
Picking up in verse 35, John himself steps into the narrative. He says, He, speaking of himself, He who saw this has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows what he is telling, that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You know, it's one thing to claim that a death has taken a place. It's another thing entirely to prove it. Uh, Mark Twain's famous quote, when rumor had gotten around that he had died, he said, you know, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. Well, John wants us to understand that the reports of Christ's death are not exaggerated. They are stone-cold, sober truth. Well, how does John know? He tells us, because I was there. Because I was an eyewitness. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. I was there, John says. I saw it. I watched the spear go into his side and the blood and water come out. No, this is not a tall tale that I picked up in some back alley bar. This is my eyewitness testimony. Now, I've made this point several times as we've walked our way through this study of John because it is one of John's Gospel's most distinguishing features. John takes every opportunity he can to remind us that he was indeed there. Now, why is that important? It's important because the truthfulness of the Gospel stands or falls on the reliability of the eyewitness testimony. These things either happened, and I mean happened, truly happened in time and space history, or they did not. And there were either people there who saw them, or they did not. If none of these things happened, then you shouldn't believe a word of it. You shouldn't. Go be an atheist or a Buddhist. For that matter, for Buddhism and Hinduism, the facts about history simply don't matter. Right? They make no difference, right? Did Buddha really say this or that? Well, it doesn't matter because all that matters are the understanding and applying the principles of Buddhism. And that works for Buddhism. It does not work for Christianity. These things either happened in history or they did not. Christ either died and rose again or He did not. And if He didn't, then go your way. That's why Paul will often say things as he does in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then to many, many others. Now that either happened or it didn't. John is here to say it did and I know because I was there. And so I'm writing all of this down for you so that you may hear and believe. Look at it again in verse 35. He says, He, speaking of Himself, who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that He is telling the truth that you also may believe. Right? This, if you didn't catch it, is the language of the courtroom. 
John is giving us his testimony. He's, he's swearing his oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Why? To verify it for you, that you, dear listener, may believe. That is always John's concern. He's not just concerned to give us a historically accurate account, though he certainly wants to do that, but he wants to confirm that account for your sake. That you might believe. That you might stake your eternal soul on these things that happened. Just before he wraps up this Gospel, he'll say it again in... John 20, verse 31, he says, But these things are written, this whole gospel is written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. That you may believe. Well, believe what? Well, in this case, that you may believe that Jesus really did die. That before He rose, He actually was dead. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters, especially in John's day it mattered, but ours as well, but it mattered in John's day because there was at the time a heresy running around in John's day that said Jesus never died. Indeed, it said Jesus could never die. It was a heresy called docetism. One thing that the docetists would claim was that Jesus, though God, was not truly human. That He did not take on flesh and dwell among us as an actual man. For them, uh, the idea that God could take on flesh and become truly human and, and in any way experience death or suffering or sorrow, to them that was abhorrent. And so they claim Jesus only appeared to have a human body. And that's where their name comes from. To appear in Greek is dokine. And so this is the docetics, the dokines, who believe Jesus was not truly human. It only looked like He was human. It only appeared that He died on the cross. But of course, they would say He didn't die. He couldn't bleed. He didn't have an actual physical body. He could never suffer. John is having none of that. He says, wait a minute. I was there. I saw His corpse. I watched Him die. John will still be fighting these same foes when he writes 1 John a few years later and he says, "...that which we have heard with our own ears, that which we saw with our own eyes and looked upon and touched with our own hands concerning Jesus, the Word of life, this is what we proclaim to you." Later in 1 John 4, he'll say, anyone who does not confess that Jesus came in the flesh is a liar and an antichrist. And again, 1 John 5, 6, he'll say, this is the one, talking about Jesus, this is the one who came by water and blood. We're back to that again. Water and blood. And I was there and I saw it. So we have John's eyewitness testimony and, and these others as well, but notice that is not all we have. John also wants to see that we, in addition, also see the clear testimony of fulfilled Scripture, even in this. Specifically, he points us to two particular passage, passages. First, in verse 36, he says, This fulfills the promise of Scripture which said, Not one of his bones will be broken. Not a bone. So no mallet 
will shatter his shin. Two images he probably has in mind here. First, in this we see the image of Christ as our Passover lamb. First Corinthians 5.7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slaughtered. This is one of those Old Testament regulations, in fact, concerning the Passover lamb. Uh, Exodus 12, verse 46 says that when that lamb was slain, uh, you shall not break any of its bones. And so when Christ comes as our Passover lamb, sacrificed in our place, not one of His bones will be broken. John wants us to see that. But we also see in this the promise God made concerning the righteous sufferer who in the Old Testament is the Messiah. This is a quote from Psalm 34 where God promises concerning the righteous sufferer, God will keep all His bones, not one of them is broken. Not one of them. And so when the righteous sufferer dies in our place, not one of his bones will be broken. John wants us to see that. But then there's a second Scripture he quotes. The one that says, They will look on Him whom they have pierced. Verse 37. That one comes directly out of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 12.10. You can turn there or I'll read it to you. But listen to what the prophet writes. Hundreds of years before these events, God speaking through Zechariah says... And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. Hey, this is rich. This is rich. Look at it. First, look at who it is they have pierced. In Zechariah, it says that it is God. The pierced one in Zechariah, the pierced one on the cross is God Himself. And it says when that happens, they will mourn for Him as for an only child, a firstborn son. Isn't that rich? But wait, it gets even richer. If you are in Zechariah, or you can look at it later, just a few verses later, Zechariah 13.1 completes the thought and says, On that day there will be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. From the pierced one there will flow a fountain for cleansing. <laughs> there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We're back to that blood and water. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The Son of God was pierced. Isaiah 53.5 says He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced in death, dying for our sins. And John wants us to see that so that we can believe it. Because listen, one day everyone will see Him. Both believers and the unbelievers who pierced Him. Revelation 1.7 reaches back to this same thought. And it says, Behold, on that day when He is coming in the clouds of judgment, every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail 
on account of Him. Oh, listen, dear one, open your eyes and see Him now by faith. Believe in the promise of His wounds. Don't wait until you have to see Him in judgment because it's too late then. Look in faith and believe now. That's what John is after. John says, I was there. I saw it. The Lord was pierced. The living one died hanging on a cross for all to see. But wait. Not only did he die, he was also buried. That fact matters as well, which brings us into this third thing, and that is Jesus was indeed a corpse buried in a borrowed tomb. Verse 41 Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, right? because the night is falling, it's almost Sabbath, which in the Jewish system starts at sunset. Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Have you ever noticed that our confessions actually do emphasize the grave? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.4, He died and was buried. The Apostles' Creed that we just confessed that He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. You see, it's easy for us to overlook the fact that He was buried and that that burial matters, that it also is a confirmation of the fact that Jesus was in indeed dead. You don't bury the living, you bury the dead. And so, look at these three things. First, look at the men who buried Jesus. There are two of them. Uh, Two additional witnesses to these things, by the way. First of all, there is Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so they came and they took away his body. Joseph is an interesting character. All four Gospels mention him, but only in conjunction with the burial of Jesus. They also tell us that he was rich. Matthew 27, 57, that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Matthew, uh, Mark 15:43, That he did not consent to the execution of Jesus because he himself was looking forward to the promise of the Messiah. Luke 23, 51. And John tells us he was, in fact, a secret Disciple. So up to this point, he had kept his faith hidden. There apparently were many who did that. John mentions that in John 12, 42. And and not as a good thing, but they were afraid. They believed Jesus to be the Messiah, but they were fearful of confessing Him because of what it would cost. But if you truly do belong to Jesus, sooner or later you must confess Him. When Joseph sees Jesus die, something moves inside of him. And of course, I believe it was the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, he's willing to come forward, step out of the darkness into the light and put his neck on the line. He goes to Pilate, wielding all the influence he can muster, ask for the body. That will get you noticed. And Pilate gives permission. Now that, that wasn't a foregone conclusion. Pilate didn't have to do that. But remember, 
Pilate knew Jesus to be innocent. He condemned him to death because the Jews had outmaneuvered him politically. He didn't think he had a choice. He refused to have enough backbone to stand up at that point, And it surely bothered him. And it surely impacts this decision now. Yes, let them have the body. Let them give him a decent burial at least. But notice Joseph was not alone. Another man steps out of the shadows to come with him. And his name is... Nicodemus. Remember him? Verse 39, Nicodemus also who had earlier come to Jesus at night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. Here's another powerful member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. And you remember in John 3 how he came to Jesus at night and Jesus shocked him by saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must receive a new heart from God or you will never even see the kingdom. Your good works aren't enough. You must have what only I can give you. Well, that shook Nicodemus. And it began to open his eyes. By the time we get to John 7, he's even defending Jesus before the Sanhedrin and taking flack for it. And now he's come out in the open, putting his reputation on the line along with Joseph of Arimathea in order to care for the body of Jesus. And here's what's amazing. Here are these two men, formerly secret, now running openly to Jesus at the very moment most of His disciples have run away from Jesus and hidden. Now to me, that surely looks like faith. right? Chuck it all and run straight to Jesus. Let the chips fall where they may. That's what some of you need to do. Forget what people think. Forget what it'll cost. Forget what they'll say. Doesn't matter if I get him. Notice, second, the way Jesus is buried. And it is lavish. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices, myrrh and aloe. That's a lot. Most Jewish burials used spices if the family could afford them because they were expensive. And the goal, and there really is no nice way of saying this, the goal was to mask the smell of putrefying flesh. And so they would wrap the body with these strips of linen to hold the thing together, right? So as the body decomposed, it didn't fall apart. And they would interweave uh, those wrappings with these spices in order to cover over the smell. And we're told this is exactly what they do for Jesus. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus, bound it, and it means rather tightly with these linen cloths, uh, along with the spices, as is the burial custom of The Jews. By the way, this is one more confirmation that Jesus is truly dead. Again, as I say, they would wrap the body very tightly, including the head and especially the jaw, to keep the jaw from popping open during rigor mortis. Had there been any life left in this body, which of course the soldiers have made sure there wasn't, but even if there had been, this act itself would snuff it out. But again, the thing we're supposed to be impressed with here is the sheer amount of the spices these rich men bring. This was a king's ransom. This is extravagant. We're meant to look at that and say, wow, that's like a royal burial. For you see, once Jesus had accomplished His mission in giving giving His life in death, His majesty as King of kings begins to reassert itself. 
By the way, that too was predicted. <laughs> Isaiah 53, 8 says, after he was executed with criminals, he is rich with a rich man in his death. Which brings us to the place of Jesus' burial. Verse 41 and 42 again. Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one has yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You know who's buried in gardens? Criminals are not buried in garden tombs. Kings are. And even the poor themselves, if they're lucky enough to even own a tomb, would often share it with the family. They would put the bodies in there till they decompose, put them in a box for safekeeping, and often even stack them together because you know, they just couldn't afford the real estate. But a brand new tomb in a lavish garden setting, and the word he uses here means this is a well-kept, manicured-style garden, that only happened to royalty. And it's something else as well. And again, I think John wants to make sure we see this. Let me ask it this way. So where was it that sin first broke into man's world, bringing us death? Where did the first sin occur? Wasn't that in a garden? And now where does Christ, having vanquished sin, rise from the dead to put an end to death's reign forever? Well, it's a garden. I do not think that is an accident. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says it this way, and I couldn't do better. He says, When man sinned in the garden, he dug a grave where either he or Jesus must die under God's judgment. And so it is for every sinner, even today. Therefore, Christ concluded His earthly ministry by entering a garden and taking residence in the grave. There, He remedied the enmity with God brought on by Adam's sin and ours. And from His grave, Jesus restores His people to fellowship and dominion with God. How urgent it is, therefore, that we should be in Christ through faith and that He should have entered that grave for us personally. Or John Flavel... That old Puritan, you know I love the Puritan, said it poetically. He said, death is a dragon, the grave is its den. It's a place of dread and terror. But Christ goes into its den and there grapples with it and forever overcomes it, disarming it of all its terror for believers. He then continues, yet for the unbeliever... The grave is a terrible place for all of those outside of Christ. Death is the Lord's policeman to arrest them. The grave is the Lord's prison to secure them. Death reigns over them in all of its awful power. But in the case of the saints, it is not so. The grave, thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ, is a privileged place of rest. There they sleep, and when they awake, it will be with singing. I love that. It matters very much that Christ both died our death and was buried in our grave. That He was truly dead. Stone cold dead as one who took our place under sin's curse. And just imagine, 
to stand there with them that day and see that grave. How devastating that must have been. I mean, what, what hope are they feeling about now? They've never seen a resurrection. They haven't even picked up on the fact that that's what he's been talking about. They have no idea what's coming. When they looked up, all they saw was a black sky with night falling. They looked down to see Jesus was dead, tucked into the tomb. It had to feel utterly hopeless. And we're going to leave them there for now. We're going to pause this story for the next two weeks with Christ in the grave, dead and buried, gone as far as they are concerned. Somewhere in the darkness, disciples are weeping, Pharisees are gloating, and night is falling. But church, that was Friday. Sunday is coming. Life is about to dawn in the place of the dead, and when it does, it will erupt out of that tomb for all to see and believe. Dear one, will you see? And will you believe that this is your hope? This is what was necessary. Your sin had to die. Uh, Judgment had to fall. And it can fall either on you or it fell upon Him to whom you entrust your soul. Christ died. He was risen. And He reigns. Let's pray. Father, the story that Your servant John lays out to us so painstakingly is not just a tale to be shared. It's not just history to be known. It is the history of the events that are our only hope. That seeing we would believe. That hearing we would understand and take hold of the offer that comes to us through Christ's dying and rising again. That through faith in Him we might have life. Lord, through faith in Him we might have hope when we stand before a grave. That death is not the end. Because of Jesus, it can never have the last word and it will not have the last word for us. One day, we will rise and there will be singing. We praise You as we trust You in Christ's name. Amen.